Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie. And good morning from Kim. Yes, Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, you're on 3CR if you haven't realised that. Uh, Coming up next is a whole program of interesting stuff. We're going to return, as everybody is at the moment, with uh, the Trump phenomenon. Uh, This week, we're going to actually get a report from uh, Vince Emmanuel. Did you know, Kim, that Vince, who uh, has been kindly giving us updates leading up to the election, not only was he completely correct about the outcome (laughs) and why... But uh, also he's become a bit of a phenomenon of his own. He's been picked up by Malaysian TV. He's been picked up by New York television stations because they want to know what he wants to say. But you heard him first here on 3CR on Solidarity Breakfast and he kindly uh, has given me uh, some information about not just... uh, what it feels like to be there at the moment, given his political point of view, but also uh, what he thinks will be ha- going to happen in the future. So incredible, isn't it? It's they have all the pundits on there, and they have their data and all the rest of it. And then when they get it completely wrong, they're interested in a class analysis of society, which is well, they're not interested in that, but that's basically what they're getting from the left. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And as he says, one of his key points is that there's this horrible sort of trying to normalise Trump. So there you go. We're going to, after eight, we're going to have an exploration of uh, what's going on at the universities. There's been cuts going through the different universities. We're going to talk to Melbourne, a representative of the NTU about what's going on at Melbourne University. But uh, I'll have to say that uh, it's uh, RMIT has uh, just cut an internal department and also out of Monash they're uh, cutting the uh, counselling service, the student counselling service uh, ability to actually cover. I mean, it's always too small, but considering the population that they have to support, but uh, that's also going on. So... This trimming, what's going on? What are their future plans? Because we know that these universities are actually cash cows now. I think that they're preparing for deregulation. That's the way that they see it. Well, there you go. And it's a hot story. After that, we're going to talk to Debbie Brennan about why it's important to go toe-to-toe with the fascists who are coming out on Sunday to celebrate 
Trump's victory. Yes, while we've all been watching on in horror, they're celebrating. That's exactly right. You're on 3CR, uh, Solidarity Breakfast. Unemployed, underemployed, receiving social security, getting bullied, penalised or harassed by your job agent or Centrelink. The Australian Unemployed Workers Union is for you. You have rights. Find out more or get involved by going to our website on unemployedworkersunion.com or by calling our National Advocacy Hotline on 03 83 It's time to fight back. A 3CR supporter. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Okay, and so we're going to go straight ahead to talking to Vince Emmanuel, my chat with Vince Emmanuel. He's 17 hours behind. You've got to remember, the US is behind us. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, so Vince is going to have a chat with me and you're going to over-listen to uh, what his experiences are regarding what's going on in America land. How do we even start from here? Well, you know, here, how can I say this? I mean, everybody has been... I think taking this in, some people are less surprised than others. There was a great skit on the famous American TV show Saturday Night Live where the black comedian Dave Chappelle and another black comedian Chris Rock did a skit um, sort of showing what white liberal people, small L liberal people, progressives were thinking the night of the election. You know, So you have these sort of urban sociolite cosmopolitan types who are thinking, oh, no, you know, demographics in the country have changed. There's no way that Trump could win. And um, they were completely wrong. And again, you know, I think it shows a profound disconnect between this sort of elite liberal class of media pundits, journalists, college professors, politicians and the like, and working class poor white people. I mean, so people keep saying working class and poor people. There's this, some truth to that. A good portion of Trump supporters also had a median income of $72,000 or more a year, which was higher than both Sanders and Clinton supporters. So it's complicated. Uh, there's some of Trump's support it does come from these Rust Belt areas. This is definitely one of his sort of wheelhouses. Northern Michigan, well, Michigan in general, northern Wisconsin. Uh, the state that I live in, Indiana, the state next to me, uh, Ohio, Pennsylvania, these areas, former industrialized, highly unionized areas, now deindustrialized, uh, post-manufacturing Rust Belt towns. And this was definitely the area that threw uh, Trump over the top. Now, there's all kinds of things that have happened in between that. There's reports coming out right now. Uh, Greg Pallast, one of the great investigative journalists of our time, his uh, his reporting is showing that there was a lot of voter suppression, uh, that there were voter irregularities with the voting machines. And, and so and this always happens. See, this is the way that the Republicans can win elections now is for people to stay home, which happened. So a good portion of people who showed up to vote for Obama didn't show up for Hillary Clinton, particularly African-Americans. And we can get into that. But also, if there's not an overall high voter turnout, the Republicans have had an easy time swinging elections because either because of the laws and because of the actual mechanisms of power officially or because they do a great job at stealing elections. And they did it in 2000 with George W. Bush. 
arguably they did it again in 2004 in Ohio with John Kerry. And they've done it once again with Donald Trump. But again, the reason for this was because people didn't want to show up and vote for Hillary Clinton as the lesser of two evils. It just wasn't enough. Donald Trump gave people something to vote for, even if that message included a message of hate. Whereas Hillary Clinton's message was simply, I am not as bad as Donald Trump. Please vote for me. And after 30 years of being in the public light, uh, that just wasn't cutting it anymore. The white supremacy element. I've been uh, interested in the way this uh, has been uh, reported here. Uh, and I guess probably there as well. But there seems to be this agenda setting, like one of the headlines was Trump beefs up the military or uh, uh, there's pictures of um, well-dressed, oh, well, I don't know, I don't think they're that well-dressed, but uh, expensively <laughs> dressed white people, older right. People, we get those images all the time. The message is it's emboldened right wing and fundamentalist Christian white people. So it's talking to this feeling of the white people feeling as if they need to take control and uh, prove to the rest of America that they hold the keys. But is that a media message or is that the truth? I think there's some truth in that. There's a great scene from a movie that Robert De Niro directed, The Good Shepherd. It's a movie about the CIA. And there's a moment in the movie where a CIA agent goes down to uh, Florida where Tony Accardo, the Chicago mob boss, was there. Now, it's well known that Tony Accardo was being funded by the CIA to operate in Cuba. This is prior to the revolution. And the CIA agent is sitting there with Tony Accardo. Italian immigrant, of course, gangster and so on. And here's the CIA agent from a WASP background, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Presbyterian. And he's and Tony Accardo says, you know, uh, Mr. Smith, um, the Italians, we have our food and our culture. The Cubans, they have their music. The Irish, they've got their dancing. He's like the Spanish, they have their dancing and culture and food. He's like, what, what do your people own? What do your people bring to this country? <laughs> the CIA agent looks at Tony Accardo and he says, Mr. Accardo, we own the United States of America and the rest of you are simply visitors. And that is the truth. That's been the truth from the beginning of this country and it remains the truth. The white elites, billionaires, people who have been in power for years. And we have a lot of dynastic families in the United States as well. And this is this fits quite well into what's happened with Trump. This is, I think, an element that we haven't talked about too much. I'm going to try and write an article about this in the coming uh, weeks. But if you, I mean, from the Kennedys to the Rockefellers to the Vanderbilts to the Carnegies to the Clintons to the Bushes to the Obamas to the Trumps. I mean, it was amazing right after the election. People had started putting out pictures or memes, I guess they're called, on, on social media uh, with a picture of Michelle Obama and the, the letters 2020 under or the numbers 2020, yeah, yeah, you know, right. hinting I that she should two. be running in 2020. So this is this says a lot. I mean, not only one does this this really highlights this sickness of presidential electoral politics where it's this sort of game show slash sports mentality where, where we have these celebrity figures and they go on the trail for 18 months, as we've talked about before, which is completely crazy. And people now, instead of thinking, OK, how are we going to deal with Donald Trump over the next four, four to eight years? The question immediately for people becomes, well, who are we going to have run against him? And let's just pick Michelle Obama because she comes from a family that's well respected. And so, I mean, 
truly amazing, especially we know this isn't true. But if you buy into the sort of right wing conservative ideology and mythology about the beginning of this country, what I find interesting about this, of course, is that Americans running like, oh, we've been independent from England. We fought off the monarchy. We fought off the rule by families and by <laughs> dynasties. And <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you, you know, we are right back at square one here. The people now who are in charge, the people who are going to run, and this is why even before I think we, when we talked, I think I mentioned that I was encouraging people just to hold their nose and vote for Clinton in the swing states just so we could get – I was prepared and I think a lot of organizers and activists were prepared for another four years of neoliberalism. We had been organizing and active under Obama for eight years. I think a lot of people were finally starting to tear away – this sort of uh, protective ideological shield that he had on for a while, you know, mm. this cultural shield where that protected him from serious criticism. Yes. Uh, that was peeled back in the last couple of years. I think Occupy and a lot of other movements like Black Lives Matter and the environmental movement were starting to highlight the limitations of neoliberalism and the limitations of the Democratic Party. And then when something like this happens, I think this really pushes us back and the reason I say this is not just because of, on the surface, Trump being a vulgar individual and so on, but because of the actual nuts and bolts and policies that will be implemented under his administration. Not only does, did Trump win the White House, your listeners have to understand that the Republicans now control both houses of Congress, the Supreme Court, and the White House. This is the first time this has happened since the 1920s, and oh we goodness. know what that ended in. Uh, we're on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast, and Kim, we're listening to a chat I had with Vince Emmanuel. Yes, and it just ended on a bad note, the 1920s. <laughs> That's right. Let's see what he, if, what actually he says. He can't be very um, upbeat. <laughs> of course, for people of color, this election has, has really been symbolic of everything that activists and organizers and people on the left have been trying to highlight and really combat in American society for some time. And that's why you see the protests in the streets are largely being led by young black and brown people in urban areas around the United States. And they see Trump as a real clear and present danger, whereas even a lot of, say, working class, middle class, poor white people who identify as progressives have really processed this election in a different way where they see you know, even I, myself, I'm, I'm also I fit into this category where I see Trump supporters. I live around Trump supporters. I live next to Trump supporters. I have Trump supporters in my family. Not all of these people are racist. A lot of these people are simply really undereducated people or they're people who are educated, but they're not taking the time to really look into these policies. And they feel so betrayed by both parties that they figure, you know what, I've been getting screwed by Republicans and Democrats for decades Yes, Bernie ran as a Democrat. Yes, Donald Trump ran as a Republican nominally. You know, so I mean, a lot of people kind of saw both of them as outsiders who were just using the Republican parties and the Democratic Party as a uh, as a sort of vessel to get their message across and to possibly take power. So a lot of people voted for him out of that reason as well. But we now have some of the most dangerous people in office. These are people who believe in, I mean, truly crazy things. I mean, people like Alex Jones from Infowars has uh, an ear in the White House now. People like Roger Stone, people like Jeff Sessions, uh, people like Rudy Giuliani. I mean, these are war hawks. These are people who don't believe in science. Vice President-elect Mike Pence under Donald Trump has made speeches on the floor of Congress talking about how evolution is just a theory, how evolution isn't real. 
We have people now who are going to be in charge of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, who are literally going to try and dismantle the Environmental Protection Agency. They have said that they want to dismantle Social Security, dismantle Medicare and Medicaid. They want to get rid of public education and get rid of the Department of Education. So this is all a possibility depending on whether or not, of course, social movements and possibly some good-hearted Democrats with some decent principles stand up to this party and to these people. Unfortunately, I think what we've already seen is that people are trying to normalize Trump. So everyone from Obama to Clinton to the liberal media, they're trying to you know, step back from 18 months of vitriol and say, well, you know, America, it's time to heal. But I'm telling you, Annie, that these, these elites, including Obama, I mean, these people are so out of touch where the average person is coming from. It's truly amazing, especially now that Trump is about to take power. You have millions of people in the street and you have the liberal class telling people, oh, you know, it's time to get along. It's time for the nation to heal. Uh, and, and they're normalizing this man. They're normalizing fascism. And even even crazier, the people who used to be considered crazies, people like Glenn Beck, an arch neoconservative cultural conservative sort of hinting at white supremacy but not really saying it he they're bringing him out of the woodwork get on shows like cnn talk about how bad donald trump is so this game is being played where donald trump is so bad and the people he's surrounded himself with are so bad that they are making other people who are terrible people look decent and this is really dangerous that's so dangerous yeah incredibly dangerous oh my goodness this is very worrying, very worrying stuff. It must be very worrying for you. Uh, what, how, how, is, uh, how are other people that you, uh, activists, how, how do the people from Black Lives Matter feel about this? What's going on there? I think people are tremendously scared in some ways. I mean, I think if people are being honest, if we're putting on a show for the media or if we're telling the public, hey, you know, we're standing strong. We're never going to give up. We're going to fight this. And yeah, of course, I mean, we have to have that. And I think all of us are gen- that is genuine. But I think also, you know, the first week uh, there was a lot of anger. A lot of people were upset. I mean, people were distraught, really. I mean, but it's interesting the day that we caught each other here today because this is now almost a week and a half after the well, this is nine days after the election. And I have to say I've sort of went through all five stages of grief uh, <laughs> within the first three days. So I by Friday of last week, I was already had accepted what was happening and I was already talking with organizers and activists and, you know, thinkers and writers and all kinds of folks. You know, what, what do you think about moving forward? What are your ideas? What are the challenges? And so I think the people I know who are very serious, who are engaged with these movements already, a lot of these people, as you see with the protests, they're already in the street resisting. They're already symbolically holding actions. They're already holding meetings and educational events, thinking about what the future looks like under Trump. So it, the encouraging side is that there are a lot of people who have already went through the five stages of grief, and they are out there now trying to decide what are we going to do next. And, you know, but I'm not going to lie. I mean, the first few days... I think a lot of, I mean, everyone from my neighbors to my parents to almost, you know, everyone I spoke to who didn't support Trump, uh, they they were either shocked or they were completely upset. You know, my neighbor is a, a Vietnam era veteran, you know, so he's in his late 60s, early 70s. And, and he told me, he said, you know, I, I am extremely embarrassed about this. I thought after the 60s generation, I knew that things weren't perfect. I knew that there was still systemic racism and institutional segregation, all of this. But I figured that this this blatant 
out in the open racism and white nationalism and white supremacy had been sort of stuffed away to where it was no longer going to be acceptable. Well, unfortunately, it's acceptable once again. However, I agree with Adolf Reed, the black intellectual in the United States, a left wing intellectual uh, who would say that this is sort of white supremacy's last gasp. I mean, there's this this form of political power, in my opinion, and I agree with someone like Reed and others, but I think that this comes at the worst time in the world. We now have people in office at every level of government who are going to actively make sure that we continue to destroy the environment. They are going to actively make sure that we speed up the process of ecological devastation and runaway climate change. Yes, you're on 3CR with Annie and... And Kim. Yes, and it's uh, Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, we, uh, there's just one last slice from Vince Emanuel. Uh, this is a reflection after the event, after Trump uh, won the presidential election in the US. It's not sounding very upbeat, I'll have to say, but uh, let's hear a little bit more. This is uh, just the uh, final piece. You know, only like 19% of eligible voters in America. So get this, 19% of the American population that's over the age of 18 voted for Donald Trump. People have to understand because I hear from people overseas, oh my God, this is what America is all about. Oh my God, I can't believe this. Okay, yes, I can understand the shock and the fact that people are scared. But I think it doesn't do any of us a service if we try to sort of uh, classify all Americans as bigots. Or if we say, oh, well, this is the kind of democracy that they have. Well, you know, we have 19, 20 percent of the population that voted for Trump. So half of our eligible voters didn't even show up. And many people who did show up didn't prefer uh, Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. And I think that's something really important for people overseas to understand. So they don't get this idea that the entire American society is shifting to the right and that we have this new wave of, say, fascist political movements who are taking over at all levels. I mean, this has been a long time coming in terms of the Republicans controlling state houses, local elections, municipal elections, uh, getting elected to small level regional governments, getting elected to the House of Representatives. This has been a 30 year, 35, 40 year political project by the extreme right going all the way back to 1980 under Ronald Reagan. Now go back to thinking about the, um, prison system that you have there, not that um, I'm saying that ours is fantastic or anything, but I was uh, reflecting on the uh, figures for uh, about something like 2 million Americans are actually in prison. They're Over on, 2 million. Yeah, and there's more more 17-year-old black men in prison than who are enrolled at college. But the other thing that's really amazing, besides the... Uh, you know, three strikes and you're out, which is just absurd to me. It's like slave labor. Labor. They have people working. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's slavery. Yeah. Yeah. Death is one of the great secrets about the American uh, prison industrial complex. So they have. So most people, and this isn't their. I mean, this isn't really their own fault. I mean, nobody talks about this, and obviously the media doesn't report on this. But a lot of Americans still see prisons when they think of prisons. They think of people making like license plates. Yeah, no, because they don't. back in the day, that's what prison they used to give prisoners these very menial jobs. Now there are many corporations, including many uh, multinational Fortune 500 corporations, who are actually producing a good amount 
of services and materials in prisons for slave labor. Of course, people are getting paid less than a dollar a day in some cases. I heard the other day that it was something like 90% of um, uh, of office furniture is made through prison labor in America. I don't know those so, numbers specifically, but, no, but, Annie, but I wouldn't be surprised. It was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. In fact. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised by that. Unfortunately, I'm not the least bit surprised by that because the more I find out, and I, you know, I have to admit as well. I mean, I think it was maybe five or six years ago that I really started to learn about this. But right when I started to learn about this, um, you know, as a, as the years have gone on, there's been more and more of evidence that's come out to sort of suggest the kind of things that you're saying, which is that there's an absurd amount of goods and services that are produced in these prisons. Uh, and these are jobs, of course. How crazy is this, Annie, at a time when Americans are more freaked out about economic insecurity than at any point since the Great Depression during this austerity, during this, this hyper-globalization that's leaving people feeling very insecure, uh, this period where people don't feel like they can find living wage jobs because they can't, exploding poverty, exploding inequality. And infrastructure is falling apart. Infrastructure is falling apart. And what do we have? We have multinational corporations outsourcing their work to the prison industrial complex. It's horrible. I, I just find that really disturbing because what it's saying is that... Modern day slavery. Yeah. And, and it's saying that actually America is a very fractured society. Oh, extremely fractured. We've talked about this before. I know that. And yeah, I mean, this election shows it once again. I mean, there are huge divisions among people who live in suburban America. Now, suburbs in America are different than the way that people talk about suburbs in Australia. So for those who are listening, suburbs for us are sort of the, the places outside of the city center. So they're subdivisions, you know, built around these sort of housing areas like cookie cutter houses where all the houses look the same and they all have the same backyard and everybody's mowing their lawn. So those suburban areas with the with the so-called sort of white picket fence, um, those areas and rural areas are vir- virtually living in a different planet than people in urban society. So if you look at many of the urban areas in the United States, it's overwhelmingly very progressive areas. These are, you know, and that's not to say that there's not racism or these kinds of things don't exist. That's simply to say that if you look at the voting patterns, if you look at who supported Clinton, who supports Obama, who supported Trump, people like this, uh, there's a huge disconnect, a profound disconnect. And there's also a profound disconnect among races. So you have, I forget what it was, 80% of white people who voted for Donald Trump and 92% of black voters who supported Hillary Clinton. So we have one political party in the Republican Party that is almost primarily now a white political party. And that is what it, it's, what it'll be increasingly become as time goes on. And the Democrats, yes, they have a more diverse party, but they are seen now as sort of a party only dealing with boutique social issues. So, no, they're not going to slash and burn the social welfare, uh, social safety nets. But will they take reforms to it? Will they allow austerity measures? Sure. Um, Will they maybe raise the minimum wage a little bit? Sure. But primarily what the Democratic Party is seen as now is a sort of boutique political party that deals with gay marriage, say, civil rights issues. Yes, it provides a home for black and brown people in the electoral sphere, but and not addressing any of the concerns of black and brown people. And, of course, people are becoming more educated about what the Clinton administration meant for people in black communities. I mean, people in black communities have known this for years, but a lot of the broader public is starting to learn about the role 
uh, that neoliberal Democrats have played in the prison industrial complex and laying the ground for the militarization of the police and the expansion of the surveillance state and so on and so on. Support for Wall Street obviously symbolized most notably in Clinton's campaign, uh, but in also as, as in Obama's reign you know, as president. And so the, this fracturing is, I mean, it's not only political, it's cultural, it's social, it's racial, it's ethnic, it's has a lot to do with class divisions. And, you know, now we see divisions among Americans who are supporting the police sort of unapologetically and uncritically and people who are wanting serious change uh, in terms of how the police police in the United States. And so these divisions are increasing. And I think we're going to see these divisions increase under Trump's presidency, not because of the left, as the media has been trying to paint the picture, but because, as you and I know, when you start putting white supremacists and anti-Semites and white nationalists in high positions of power within the most powerful military apparatus in the history of the world, uh, I, I don't think it's a surprise, uh, and I don't think it should be a question as to what it is that's going to happen. You're going to have extreme division. We live in an extremely diverse society in the United States. You cannot have people in power who are white supremacists in a country where white people are going to be the minority in 25 years. Uh, this, this is a major problem. I mean, this is not only a major problem, but I, I mean, in my, in my worst days, I think in my friends who, you know, speculate about these kinds of things, you know, is we need, we really, really, really need people to organize, Annie. I mean, this, see, as I talk, the more I, I can, I, it hits me, sort of the gravity of the situation. I, I'm telling you, if, if there's a climate catastrophe in this country, if there's a major terrorist attack or if there's an economic collapse under this guy, uh, everyone, including myself, are probably going to be in for a world of surprise and hurt. I mean, so, so what these people will do in the case – now, their regular policies and the institutions as they operate on a day-to-day basis is bad enough, as you understand, and as I'm sure many of your listeners do. But God forbid – under extreme circumstances. So this is a terrorist attack. This is, say, ecological devastation, maybe a superstorm or something like this. Maybe this is an eco- economic collapse, which a lot of people are arguing that, you know, the world is sort of prepared for or sort of set for another recession, mm. especially the American economy. If and when those types of things happen under a Donald Trump presidency, I think it's all bets are off. Uh, and we're going to all have to sort of band together and we're going to need as much solidarity, not only internally among progressive left groups within the United States who have to start working together and stop all of this horizontal hostility, you know, going at each other's throats because they disagree on 5% when we agree on 95%. Um, that has to stop because now we're in a situation where it's no longer, I mean, I feel like even as terrible as things were under Obama, there was this sense, like people kind of knew, okay, there was nothing extremely out of, say, the, the norm that could happen. Now, I, I, you know, I would argue that people are thinking the opposite. People are wondering, well, what, what could happen? Is anything possible? I would argue that anything is possible. Uh, and I think we've had it so good here for so long. The industrialized world have seen the United States, uh, even if as a violent entity and as a very greedy sort of global entity, at least as a very stable entity. And, and I just don't think that that's the case anymore. I think that you're going to see increasing instability abroad where a lot of our uh, allies and former allies are going to start bringing into question whether or not they should have these kinds of political ties and closeness to the United States. And I think you're going to start to see 
the unraveling of American society internally uh, as more and more people are pushed to the margins and as white supremacists are emboldened. I am not in love, but I'm open to persuasion. When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. You're on 3CR, Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and me, Kim. I wanted to talk for a moment about the Electoral College because, of course, we've just heard Vince Emmanuel reporting live from the US. The Electoral College is what basically allows for someone like Hillary Clinton, not that we support her, to win the popular vote, but instead Trump wins the election. And a lot of people have been calling for its abolition because it supports, basically distorts the whole American electoral system. Uh, Because of, you know, winning a certain number of states, what people do is they only campaign in 10 or 12 swing states instead of campaigning in the most uh, populous regions of the US, which are more multiracial places like New York, Texas and California. And that actually, if they had to win the popular vote, they would have to campaign to a more multiracial audience, which I think is interesting. Yeah, I think it's fascinating too. uh, It's very interesting how a hold is, uh, a reign is held on uh, actual change or uh, the expression of uh, the general population's beliefs. Uh, And perhaps that's why there were so few people that came out to vote. Because the whole, I think even if you didn't have this system, obviously its problem is much bigger than that. The problem is capitalism, but they can't even handle a little bit of democracy. Yeah. Well, we're now on the line. We're moving on on to have a yarn with uh, Alex, who is an NTEU delegate at uh, Melbourne University. Uh, G'day, Alex. How are you? Thanks for getting up in the morning and having a yarn with us. Uh, No worries. Yeah. Kim. Uh, yeah. Hi, Kim. Sorry. Hey. Hi, Kim. Hi, Annie. Yeah. Now, the reason for why we have woken you up for Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR is because the uh, Melbourne University are making cuts, uh, and uh, we were wondering uh, what the National Teach- uh, Tertiary Education Unit Union's response is to these cuts and what to kind of cuts they're making. Yeah, so the NTU branch, um, which I'm a member of the branch committee of, is uh, opposed to these cuts. Uh, basically, what we're seeing is um, probably at least 50 staff going, potentially more, um, and this has not been part of a um, some university-wide announcement that they're going to be cutting these jobs. What the university has tried to do is rushed through a whole series of um, local area restructures um, under the guise of just, um, you know, adjusting things a little bit, um, yeah, in preparation for next year's budget. But um, what that has meant is that there's over 10 areas that are restructuring 
And um, in all of those areas, there's at least, um, yeah, a little bit of change around the position numbers and job descriptions. Um, but, yeah, in particular areas, there's a lot of jobs going and pretty substantial changes. So, um, yeah, in particular the um, careers advice area and um, the academic support area, the sort of uh, people that students go to with their, um, yeah, struggling with an essay or thesis, um, yeah, to um, get help with their written English and, um, yeah, uh, things like that. Uh, both of those areas, the university is looking at getting rid of staff who are um, experienced to often have um, tertiary qualifications in providing that sort of career and academic advice um, and replacing them with um, lower paid, lower skilled positions, um, which will often be, um, yeah, undergraduate students trying to provide um, this sort of advice to other undergraduate students, which particularly when you're talking about... Um, yeah, uh, providing high levels of academic support and providing career advice of all things to have um, students talking to students um, is, yeah, no substitute for talking to people who've actually got, yeah, years and years of um, training and experience under their belts. I think it's very telling that they're cutting this from the career advice, especially when there are many less jobs for graduates, but why would they care about that since they're making so much money out of them studying anyway? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these uh, these cuts are actually coming on top of um, the university sacking one in five of its um, non-academic staff members uh, just a year ago. Um, and... Um, yeah, the whole experience at the university over the last few years has been the university prioritising its brand and its profitability over um, the working lives of its um, staff members and, um, yeah, the education of its students. So, yeah, while they've been, um, yeah, cutting support services to students, they've been um, taking this money and um, reinvesting it into hiring um, well-published professors from um, other universities, people who um, yeah, have a history of um, yeah, getting publications in um, prominent journals, of getting grants um, from yeah, private sponsors, um, bringing them into the university in the hope of basically artificially boosting the university's rankings in international league tables. And that then becomes a way of um, the university presenting itself internationally as, um, yeah, a highly prestigious institution that um, people from, um, yeah, overseas and um, also from Australia will want to come to and pay the, you know, um, top dollar for um, a degree from. But, yeah, that sort of... um, yeah, boosting of the rankings um, is actually coming at the cost of um, providing the, um, yeah, kind of decent, um, yeah, 
education and support that um, students should be expecting when they come here. So what um, you really what I'm getting from this is uh, I get these several pictures in my head of bean counters, uh, uh, highfalutin fellas with their noses in the air with uh, big dreams, and um, I also get this impression of. Uh, um, a person who's got very weak ankles and is very top-heavy, that, in fact, the university could actually be going for a fall in the future. No foundations. Uh, potentially, yeah. I mean, and when you look at the situation for um, early career academics at the university, um, they haven't been um, laid off in the numbers that, um, like, yeah, general staff like myself have, but um, they've um, got very little, um, yeah, security um, and no real prospects at the university. Um, again, because it's either um, like mates hiring mates or um, top um, academics being poached in for all the um, more senior positions, um, while the bulk of the teaching and research is being done by people who are on casual contracts or, um, yeah, year-by-year fixed-term contracts. Um, what's, yeah. the morale, what's the morale like amongst your members? Uh, it's not great. I mean, it's been um, pretty rock-bottom since we had the, the massive cuts where, um, yeah, 500 people were um, sacked um, just a year ago. And, yeah, it's not improved since there. And... That restructure was um, talked about as if it would be the, you know, the restructure to end all restructures. Um, but, um, yeah, within um, 12 months where, yeah, singing um, more staff go um, on top of the, uh, the losses that we already saw. How do you keep the university running? Like, how does this affect your everyday life? Because that sounds like impossible numbers to get rid of. Uh, it, yeah, the, the university's been, well, it's, it's always run on the goodwill of staff, but, um, that's been a, um, more and more explicit expectation that people, um, run around, work harder, um, yeah, do unpaid overtime, like, and, yeah, it, it often is a lot of, um, people, yeah, running around like headless chooks because the um, since these massive cuts, um, we've lost a lot of the staff who'd been at the university for years. You could rely on them to know, yeah, to go to, to know the answer to a tricky question. Like, all those sort of people are gone. Um, and every single deck chair was shuffled around um, during that massive restructure. So people often don't know yeah, who to go to, where to go to, to get stuff done, to get questions answered. Um, so, I mean, sometimes it means that things just, um, yeah, just don't work. So the climate of ch- um, fear must have increased as well? Uh, yeah, yeah. So what's uh, the union's approach to dealing with this? What's the approach? What are, what's the union thinking about how to deal with these things? Because it's well, it will come to an end. This is this is what you what they're doing is creating a monstrous, uh, an unpleasant work site. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so at the moment we're, um, we've, uh, yeah, had meetings with, um, with members and um, out of those we've got, um, yeah, delegates from a number of the areas which, um, which are affected by these very structures, which is um, a step forward because the, the union does have reasonably low density um, and, yeah, it does need to build up our... Um, yeah, we do need to build up our, um, our membership, but also um, the layers of active membership in um, a lot of areas of the university. So, um, yeah, we've pulled these um, delegates together for... Um, some meetings around um, responding locally, um, so organising members locally to deal with the um, yeah the change proposals in their areas, but also to try to counter um, the way that the university is dividing people off into little isolated pockets. Um, so we're um, yeah trying to get a um, a university wide campaign off the ground where we're. Um, Petitioning, having um, yeah protest actions on campus, um, and um, yeah trying to make um, academics and um, general staff um, from outside of these areas aware of what's going on and yeah why they should be um, involved in opposing yeah these cuts. As well as um, staff, I think that. Obviously, this affects students as well, but obviously students should support workers' rights in general, the rights of their teachers and staff and so on. But I think that... Could you outline some of the... You have already have some of the ways that this affects students. I've noticed that they've been trying to get students to do more and more admin online, so enrol online and those sorts of things as well. Obviously, these cuts will affect students in terms of not being able to access student services. How else do you think it will affect students? Um, well, I think that'll be the uh, that'll be the big immediate effect that the um, the quality of the advice that students is, are going to be getting um, is going to be lessened and. Um, yeah, it's going to be just more difficult to um, access, um, yeah, that advice in the first place. Um, but, yeah, I mean, students can expect more and more of the, um, yeah, this idea that by, um, yeah, somehow being able to fill out, like, uh, an online form, um, yeah, is a substitute for actually um, talking to um, someone in person about your enrolment, Um yeah, well, it's quite rumors. complex, isn't it? I mean, I, I've I've seen this from the outside. Uh, one of my nephews, where uh, it becomes this catch twenty two situation constantly because students quite often have to negotiate what they're going to actually do. It's not simple, is it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And that has meant um, since the last round of cuts that um, a, a lot of academics are um, experiencing a. Um, increasing their workloads and increasing the students um, who are coming to them to get these um, tricky questions answered about um, Which is useless. Yeah, what to do about their enrolment. Yeah, because it's useless. Hate... They can't do anything about it. And so what you've got yeah. is this horrible sort of Alice in Wonderland sinkhole situation. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good summary of, um, yeah, a lot of students' experience these days. Um, and we do have um, a lot of the support now is provided through um, a student centre that they call Stop One, which is um, the big building down in the corner of um, Grattan Street and Swanston Street. And the staff there, like, they, um, yeah, work... Uh, really hard, really um, trying to provide, um, yeah, good support to students. But um, unlike in the past where, um, yeah, they or other staff would be located in the departments or faculties um, where the students they were consulting with, um, yeah, were based, they're now all in one big centre and they're expected to somehow know the question, the answer to, um, yeah, questions from... Yeah, students everywhere from, you know, the arts faculty to engineering, um, everyone from, yeah, a international first-year student to a, like, third-year PhD student. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's just not something that um, they can possibly, yeah... Uh, well, it sounds yeah, like to me that the big... Manage. You can't be across yeah. that much. Yeah, it's, um, it sounds like to me that the big boys and the big girls upstairs just have absolutely no connection to the reality of the institution that they're running. My experience was applying for a PhD was that there was only one person who knew the application process who I could talk to and finding them was a bit of research in itself. <laughs> I think as well another big problem for students is how do they negotiate things like work, which affects working-class students far more, and a computer system is not at all sympathetic to the fact that you need to work to support yourself and that clashes with your classes. But it's yeah, okay. yeah. Um, yeah, and there's more, there's more projects in the pipeline um, around um, trying to replace... Um, more um, like you know student admin um, yeah type roles like my own um, with um, online forms basically where you you can either apply because you um, yeah fit the rules in university policy um, for you know uh, say a leave of absence or a change to part-time status or you can't apply because you um, don't fit those rules um, these rules have always been applied, but in the past it would actually be a, um, a human being, um, yeah, uh, like considering your application, um, being able to look at like whether there's, um, yeah, special circumstances like students from working class backgrounds, like, um, yeah, um, like women who've got, um, yeah, young kids, um, people with... Um, yeah, who are experiencing a disability, all these sort of things um, that, yeah, a student administrator can, um, yeah, factor in, but an electronic form can't, at least in the first instance, which means that, like, ultimately you'd hope that those things would be taken into consideration, but it's just that little bit more of a, a fight for people to actually, um, yeah, get those things taken into account. Um, but, yeah, as far as the university is concerned. Um, the old approach was being too um, risk-averse, um, which I think is really code for saying that all the risks should be placed on to, um, to students um, and the university is not prepared to take any of the risk or invest any of the resources. It's up to 
yeah, students to self-serve, to run around, um, trying to get things fixed up. And if they can't, um, yeah, then too bad. Yeah, too and, bad. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to us this morning, Alex, and best of luck with your campaign. Thanks a lot, Kim. Thanks, Annie. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when the Caring Business Class Party and the Caring Business Class are abraded by this silly socialist suggestion that maybe the caring business class shouldn't be allowed to bring in as many workers from around the world and caring employers should spend more to train local workers. And abraded by the suggestions from the long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden worker and iron lots that True Blue Aussie should bring in lots of no-proper-papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people just because they have been found to be refugees fleeing in many cases the liberation we brought them through the coalition of the killing we must be allowed to bring in and we must be allowed not to bring in but this plan to send all these asylum seekers who have nowhere to go and here let me quote some insensitive u.s of the u.n of the u.s of the world commentator who proffered that they could go to wait for it wait for it true blue aussie what what audacity anyway send them to the u.s of and we recall True Blue Aussie agreed to take Puerto Rican refugees from the US of, and big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull said there was no connection whatever between the two, and who but the most cynical would have thought there was? Just pure coincidence. Although it may be no coincidence that given True Blue Aussie knows those fleeing persecution and seeking refuge must suffer the most severe punishment like being locked up for life, that banishing them to the US of may be seen at the moment as the most severe punishment we could think of. And on the other matter, caring business class spokesperson Innes Willax the Poor said caring employers must have the right to import labour because there was skill shortages caused by those locals who could do the work expecting to be paid for it. And when the week that was put to witness that the pre-privatisation then public utilities used to train apprentices and skilled workers, he made the sensible comment that that proved the shortages were the fault of the bloated public sector which had abandoned those responsibilities. Just losing the ownership of these utilities and lovely, lovely, valuable assets doesn't mean the government should not retain the training the workers for the new owners bit. We, we are the first to admit the government has a responsibility to fund the training of skilled workers for caring employers. Showing the super-efficient private sector does not say the bloated, inefficient public sector has no role in these matters. We we are very open-handed, uh, open-minded. And to show the caring business class only um, care only for their lazy, avaricious workers, 
what depths the caring business class altruism, thinking only of their workers despite those workers so crucifying them day after day. Only care for, in the wake of US our big supremo elect Donald Trump or the pause promised to lift the oppressed out of oppression by slashing caring business class taxes, retiring true blue Aussie Business Profits Council Chair Catherine Livingstone the backs of, preparing to carry her chair to the witch bank, which used to be our bank when it was so inefficient, joined her big supremo Jennifer Best to Cut Taxes in declaring it's not just best to cut taxes, it is imperative we must cut taxes. See, the Profits Council had been most reasonable. Agreeing cuts to the taxes they don't pay could be phased in. But in the wake of Donald's promise, the cuts must be brought forward. If our taxes aren't slashed, they explained with great sincerity, great concern, true blue Aussie workers will suffer. When their sole concern is the ingrate workers, we're left to ponder what's in it for them in slashing the taxes they don't pay. And Catherine's concern goes deeper. She has also declared slow wages growth as a major problem for the true blue Aussie economy. Although in that case, as we've told her a few times, we don't quite see the problem. The week that was points out to her there is a fairly simple and we would have thought obvious solution to that one. On Donald, we've all been impressed by the list of deep-thinking competents being mooted as his little helpers. White men in suits, plus Sarah Appaling, representing womankind. Can you see Russia from Washington? Did, did you know I can see Russia from my front veranda? And including John Belton, the former US of UN of the US of the UN of the World Ambassador, the neocons whose legacy is still being enjoyed across the Middle East and in refugee camps across the world. But no need for us to comment. The liberal US of journalist Glenn Greenwald summed him up succinctly this week. One of the most sociopathic warmongers on the planet. No satire, sadly, direct quote. Yes, won't it be good for the world to have John back making the big train killer decisions, although just a little bit of weak that was advice. I, I wouldn't be planning a holiday in evil, evil, evil Iraq in the next year or two. On train killing, bringing the benefits of liberty, freedom and democracy, Western Christian civilization to the lucky but ingrate peoples of the Middle East, back here, Malcolm and the team have been urging caring employers to utilize the skills of former trained killers. And there are some obvious areas where those skills would be invaluable. Debt collection springs to mind. The, sorry, forces of law and order. Or, I applied for this, like, you know, job, because, like, you know, I, I heard you say you expected, you know, like, to make a, like, you know, killing. Great. Who, who do I have to, you know, like, like, you know, kill? But, then I'll get another, you know, like, medal for, like, bravery, like. Uh, yes, yes, uh, Robert. Uh, call me Basher. Uh, yes, yes, Basher. Unfair as it may be, there are laws about killing your enemy in this war, the war of commerce, but what other skills could you offer us? Oh, like I can just, you know, like break their arms, uh, kneecap them, and, and I'm, you know, like a deep thinker. 
yes, that should be another successful government campaign. And the government is also campaigning around mental health support for train killers and ex-train killers, but given that those who join the train killers do so to become train killers, then providing mental health support after they've enlisted to kill or after they retire would, I would have thought, be years too late. Get in before they join, intervene to stop anyone joining and problem solved. Then if and when those who wish to pursue peace by a bit of invasion and slaughter wish to pursue peace, they'll have to head off themselves to do the invading and slaughtering, which just might make them think a touch more than once. On such matters, the treading water U.S. Armed Secretary for Ruling the World, John Kerrying for the Rich, in Marrakesh at this climate change, which may or may not be climate change talk fest, treading rising water perhaps anyway, John said, on the way picking up the Think Before You Opening Your Mouth award in a walkover, no one has the right to make decisions that affect millions of people based on ideology. He was talking about Donald's assertion that climate change is a Chinese conspiracy, so all those U.S. of perpetual invasions and slaughters must obviously have nothing to do with ideology. John, your Think Before Opening Your Mouth award is on the way. Oozing logic over the Chinese conspiracy, our very own Minister for Fossil Energy and Fossil Pollution, Josh Friedem Icebergs, was deeply upset at this report, placing True Blue Aussie way up in 57th place in the developed world in addressing the conspiracy. Hard to believe a country whose Minister for Big, uh, minister whose big Supremo, whose government, whose responsible corporate fossils argue that beautiful lifting the world out of poverty coal will energize the world for the foreseeable future, however foreseeable that future might be, could land in 57th spot. Friday, icebergs exploded at this ignorant, unfair rating. The proof of our commitment lies in the results of our policies. He put them in their place. Good point, Josh. Our commitment, our policies explain why we've been put in our place, explain our 57th ranking. Have helping environments around the world, as BHP for bloody huge profits, BHP Bilious Town's big supremo Jack Nastia, led a minute's silence at the big no longer True Blue Aussie annual meeting as a tribute to its human and environmental victims in Brazil. His sorrow, his sincerity was palpable. Expressed without silence when Nastia declared bloody huge denied any wrong in the disaster. We deny all charges, he told the shareholders. Charges based on circumstantial evidence like reports going back years warning the disaster could occur unless Buddy Hughes spent money to fix up the problems but did nothing about it. That is our obvious and watertight defence. Well, watertight mightn't be the word given what happened, what accidentally happened, but they can't say we did nothing about it because we did nothing about it and obviously, obviously doing absolutely nothing about something is doing something about something. What we did about it was to do nothing. Do nothing. Do. How dare they charge us with doing nothing when we did nothing? And finally, they didn't do absolutely nothing about it. Of course not. They called for a minute's silence for their victims. Palpable sorrow, palpable sincerity. But they do have a bottom line to think about. The, the victims must respect that. 
Good morning. Well, that was The Week That Was with Kevin Healy, and you are on 3CR, Solidarity Breakfast with Annie Kim, and we have a guest. Yes, we do. Hello, Debbie Brennan. Good morning. Good morning. And we've brought you in here, and you have you said you'll come, because tomorrow uh, there's going to be a demonstration in the city, isn't there? Yes. Uh, I'm here from Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, uh, which I'll refer to as CARF. It's just a bit easier. So CARF and No Room for Racism um, are organizing a very, very important counter-mobilization against... Um, the fascists again, but this one is um, particularly important. The United Patriots Front and the True Blue Crew are planning a rally to celebrate the election of Trump. And um, given that that fascinating interview that you had earlier with Vince Emanuel, I think that that explains why tomorrow is just so terribly important, because the likes of Trump and the election of Trump, alongside the electoral success of One Nation here, are emboldening the far right and these neo-Nazi groups, which we, for the last nearly two years, have been able to hold back, but they're being emboldened now in these times, and they're going to be coming out in force tomorrow. Um, and so we have to be out there in counterforce against them. Mm. So where, where are you rallying? It's going to be at Parliament House, and we're rallying at 1 o'clock. So uh, we're going to be there before the fascist um, rally begins, and we're there as always because we can never ever allow them a platform because that's what they're constantly seeking is that platform for their really violent, dangerous ideas from which to recruit. And as we look at what's happening around the world today in the United States and here in Europe and elsewhere, um, the far right and neo-Nazi groups are actually... um, These are times for growing, uh, growing, and they are mobilizing very, very hard. So we've got to out-mobilize them, so we've got to be really serious about it. So speaking of platforms, um, I was just having a look at their Facebook page, the United Patriots Front, and it seems that since Trump's election, they've had an incredible increase in likes. I mean, if Facebook likes are anything to go by. But the whole thing is just filled with posting saying that – Actually, this is a right-wing populist movement that is sweeping Europe, that the election of Trump has really emboldened them. And they're saying this themselves. So I think that there's a lot of... I've been handing out flyers for these anti-Trump rallies and people say, what has that got to do with Australia? Well, the fascists can see that it has something to do with Australia. Look, that's a really, really important point um, because we do have to understand that what has been happening here for the last nearly two years, has never been disconnected from the rest of the world. And um, while they have remained, the fascists have remained small and fragmented, they've always been connected with that um, that global... There is a a core group of people who are being uh, 
mobilised by people in England and America. Is that a correct analysis? I, I think that would be a correct analysis, and I think the reason it is a correct analysis is because, let's face it, we can never get away from the, the fact, the reality, that we are living in a global capitalist world and that global capitalism is um, becoming a basket case. It's just going belly up. It's, it's really falling apart. And whether we're talking about people here in Australia, and I'm talking about working class people, and also the shop owners and so on, the middle class people, whether and the very poor, and and the, and I call them working class too. If they can't sell their labor, they're still working class. And so, whether they're here in the United States, in Europe, or anywhere in the world, they we I should say are feeling. That hideous, um, not only hardship, but it's that that insecurity, that not knowing what's going to happen next, that feeling of gloom. I think has penetrated a lot of people, um, people's thinking. And it's so, not just gloom, though. There are people. I mean, the the practicalities of one's life. You know, having a shelter. Uh, having a productive life, being able, if you've got children, be, uh, actually being able to provide for them, that sort of stuff is actually really, you know, people are feeling the knife on their neck. Well, I mean, exactly. And when you're having your, your university, you know, um, taken away from you, as was discussed earlier this morning, and you mentioned the all the other parts of life and, and our jobs disappearing and our welfare disappearing and so on, when we see that happening... Um, we, we're going to look for answers. We need answers. And the thing is, where are the answers going to be coming from? And so far, the far right have been offering answers, as we know from One Nation, as we know from Trump, for example, that uh, we should be blaming the immigrants. We should be blaming those single mothers on welfare. We should be blaming the young people who aren't out there getting jobs as though there are jobs for them. We should be blaming the First Nations people. We should be blaming so which, many which, people. Now that we're jumping, I'll jump in here, which is exactly, if you looked at the front page of The Australian on, fr- on Friday and may my eyes rot out of my head for doing so, they were the three groups of people that were being attacked by the federal government. Well, exactly. And don't forget, we should be blaming the unions as well. That's right. They were there. So, in other words, what we are looking at is a very dangerous global multi-issue movement. Our lives are multi-issue lives, whoever we may be. And... We need to be organizing in a multi-issue way, um, drawing all of those issues together and knowing what to really blame. And, of course, what to really blame is the global capitalist system that is causing all of this. So, again, why is this happening? It's happening because of the times. It's because of the economic times globally and these these far-right demagogues, just come out. They have a platform. They can win elections because they're they're bankrolled. Um, they've got the resources. They've got um, all of that that's needed, and so that makes it even more urgent for us who are looking for real answers, who want to survive this and change this around, to be getting out there and unifying. 
I think that sometimes people can look with some sort of superiority, you know, from Australia and go, well, you know, we don't have someone who's proposing that we build a wall around Australia. But essentially, that's what we have with our immigration and refugee policy. I think Naomi Klein pointed it out in her interview um, in Australia that, well, you're not building a wall, but you're building a wall around people on places like Nauru, Manus Island. And I think it was also um, maiden speech of Pauline Hanson. Technically, rhetorically, it was to the right of things that Donald Trump says. Like Donald Trump doesn't come out and, you know, say that single mothers shouldn't be on welfare or attack welfare recipients because he wanted to get elected. I'm sure that he that might his tune might change a little bit now. But I think that people in Australia shouldn't feel so superior about what's happening in the US. Well, exactly, because things are coming across in different words, in different forms, but for substantially the same reason. So as you say, we don't have a wall, but we do have those closed borders and those very brutally closed borders, which we're all very painfully aware of. Um, And also, we don't have to do that so-called locker room um, or hear that locker room rhetoric coming from somebody um, about women. As you say, the attacks are actually happening on women right now, or they're about to escalate on women. We can also bring in the, um, the blaming of LGBTIQ people. That, and, of course, they, alongside independent women who are, as the far right well understands, the very existence of of all of us, whether be we, be we be independent women or LGBTIQ people, we do threaten that patriarchal nuclear family, which the capitalist system relies upon. And so that scapegoating is happening very, very much here. We only have to recall what's been going on with the Safe Schools program. So it's, it's a very... Um, it's a very hate-filled, brutal, dangerous scapegoating that has been going on here in Australia. And you're right, it is no different um, here in Australia from what we're seeing in the United States. You're on 3CR, Solidarity Breakfast, Annie and Kim, and we're talking with Debbie Brennan. And uh, we're talking about a demonstration or a counter-rally that's going to happen tomorrow, 1 o'clock, starting at Parliament House steps against the celebration that's being uh, talked about by far-right groups celebrating Trump's victory. Um, one of the things I was quite interested in was, uh, uh, you say scapegoating, but uh, in actual fact uh, it's as if uh, this kind of uh, vaingloriousness coming out of the right is about permission to attack people of difference. We hear a lot of gloating going on um, here from the likes of Pauline Hanson, for example, and the United Patriots Front, etc., as as well as the far right in the United States, that um, we now, we the far right, now have a voice and we are no longer as going... As if they didn't have one before. Exactly. And and we are now no longer going to be tolerating being silenced by, quote-unquote, political correctness. And so, it, as you, you're right, it's that permission that's being given, and that, um, 
that's all part and parcel. Those are the ideas, the ideas that we've got to fight. And those ideas are going to be coming across viciously, not only in words, of course, but through legislation. We've got to be careful about that. And and of course, on the streets. Well, it's funny you should say that because we should let people know that there's a uh, snap protest, block the bill protest today, refugee lifetime ban bill, which has been put forward. They are inviting people to come to Federation Square to get today at one p.m. Uh, to and that that's the kind of legislation perfect that you're example. talking about. A perfect example, and that's just going to be happening on so many fronts. Now, while all of this sounds scary and negative, uh, I think that, um, I mean, that's just, we're just, we can just see what, what we're facing, and we have to know what we're facing. But we also know, what we, we have to know what we can do about it. And something that um, I'm very proud of with Campaign Against Racism and Fascism is that it's a united front, it's a united front that needs to build and broaden, but it already involves numerous groups and, uh, you know, mainly socialist, anarchist, many unionists, First Nations activists, um, LGBTIQ people. And it's a united front of, of all the different groups that are being targeted by the far right and will be targeted by the far right. And it's essential that we do form a very strong and broad united front. And we all have our differences. We have our different views of how to do things and what's causing things and so on. But um, what brings us together is that we are united around points of unity. And those points of unity are to be um, countering fascist and far-right forces whenever and wherever they appear, and to always stand together with any targeted groups whatsoever. And just one other thing I'll say about that United Front is that we've really got to be working, those of us who are in unions really need to be working on bringing the union movement on board because we can rest assured that just as the far right is going after the left, it is going after, well, we only have to think of the ABCC, it is going after the union movement, it will go after the union movement, it's going to go after those who are capable of organizing in resistance. They knew, know who they need to go after. So we have to embolden ourselves and strengthen ourselves and be ready for, we have to show the superior strength. I think just for a moment, it's related to that, but going back to the block the bill, I think that we should remember that that policy came out in the wake of a terrible opinion poll for Malcolm Turnbull. So this is his way of trying to whip up support. And we've got to remember what the government's agenda is. It's attacking unions. So all these things are linked. I wanted to ask you, and I won't hide my opinion that I agree with the strategy of confronting the fascists, but could you explain to people why you think it's important to confront the fascists as opposed to, you know, turn your back and, you know, morally... Don't give them them oxygen. Yes, thank you for asking that. (laughs) The reason... We, we have to confront the fascists again wherever, whenever they appear. Is that platform, they, they do this, they, they get out there because 
they are creating a public space, a platform for their ideas. And in these times that we're discussing, those ideas are getting traction among people who don't have a counter-argument. And we have to stop them from having that platform because that is how that platform is how they are going to recruit. Another thing that's asked um, us a lot is, but what about free speech? Now we agree. We will. We we totally agree with free speech. We will defend free speech. What we're doing by c- confronting. Um, the fascists in the far right, is that we are using our free speech to out-voice them, to overcome that voice. It's a battle of voices. It's a battle of ideas. It's a battle of strength. And that's why we have to take on that battle, and we've got to be out there. And the other aspect of confronting is that confronting is very, very important. It's very important. And we need to do it in a disciplined way, and that's how we do it. We are out there in unity in a disciplined fashion, watching each other's backs, linking our arms and all of those other you know, um, metaphorical and real ways of confronting together in unity. And um, we are also prepared to defend ourselves. The violence... I'm sure I don't need to tell a lot of listeners out there, the violence does not come from those of us who are confronting the fascists um, and defending our communities. The violence come from the, comes from the fascists. It comes from the police. It's usually so we, started by the police. Exactly. And we are up against those two very violent forces. And so... That's why our unity in standing strong against that every single time is absolutely essential. Could I share just a, an experience that I had on a rally? In fact, it, was, it wasn't one of the anti-fascist rallies, but it was their scene. It was the March for the Babies. Yes. Oh, the little I, babies. Yes, for the little babies. And this was oh, quite a revelation a to me because I was there with this young woman who was in year 12, and she was just fantastic. She found herself, you know, screaming at, the, um, at these right-wingers, but also at the police. And she said something which, in my ignorance, had not occurred to me. The police were saying, we're here to protect you, we're here to protect you. And she said, if you're here to protect me, why are you facing us and not facing the right-wingers who are against women having the right to choose? And that had never occurred to me. They well, always face exactly the right. left-wingers and they don't actually face the... People, you know, well, the right wing. since we're in the sharing mood, I remember going to Kerribilli when John Howard was in. We we went up from, I was in a country town, we went all the way up from Warrnambool up to uh, Kerribilli and uh, the woman I was with, uh, the, the, it was all lined with cops and uh, there's nothing like a line of cops to make you feel ooh, a bit nervy. <laughs> and um, she, she just stood really tall and she said to me, and she kept turning around saying, hello, have a, how, how are you today? It's such a nice day. She said, she said, always talk to them. You're in control. You're a citizen. And I thought that was really interesting as well. I don't think they can actually hear me from five foot three. <laughs> They're all so No, tall. but it's about power relations, isn't it? I just think it's really interesting that uh, we should be frightened of police. We are frightened of police. That says something. 
in itself. If they're protecting us, why are we so scared of them? Yes, well, I, I think that um, we need to be looking at the role of the police in terms of the demonizing of those who do organize against the far right and the fascists. And it is those of us who organize, who are demonized by the police, who um, who insist that they are neutral, that we're just a left extreme against the right extreme, but they tend to put the tear gas against us. Um, and as you say, Kim, they have their backs yes. to them, not well, to... Well, it depends because actually sometimes I think with the... Sometimes with the fascists, they can try and contain them. It depends on the day, I think. But a lot of their strategy in the past has been to actually corner us off and to allow the fascists to march, to actually facilitate their marching. At least that's happened a couple of times. And I think we also have to look at the laws that are coming in, and we are seeing the laws against masks. Um, Again, that is part of the demonizing, and I'm afraid that that demonizing has taken – has – gotten some sort of traction out there in the community. Um, and so it, it, it's important, again, for us to be clear that when we're facing a basically the, the agencies of a capitalist state that want to keep the status quo, even though the status quo is lurching to the right and becoming far more um, cruel and brutal to most people now, um, then we need to see and not be surprised when the horses are coming at us, when the tear gas is being, or the pepper spray is being directed at us, we need to know that we are actually fighting um, these dangerous neo-Nazi forces and these far-right forces that are, in the big scheme of things, being protected by the police and by the laws and by the media and by the state. So we need to know really the times that we're in and what we're really out there in the streets to do. And we're in those streets to defend ourselves, to defend our rights and to defend each other, each scapegoated group. And we do, once again, need to be um, organizing very hard, and that's where the organized movements need to come in, such as the union movement. So the counter-rally tomorrow to the celebration to Trump by the far right is going to be at one o'clock at uh, the steps of Parliament House, Victoria Parliament House. Thanks very much for coming in and talking to us. Thank you. And being such a a voice of uh, reason. Debbie? And resistance. And resistance. And resistance, yes. And thank you for being the same. You're on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to... Fill in the dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, fill in the... 
3CR Community Radio. You got it right. You've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am. We're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by... By Neil Mitchell. And that's it for Solidarity Breakfast this morning. Uh, we started the show with Vince Emmanuel, who gave us a wrap-up of what's going on in the United States after the uh, election victory by Trump uh, in the presidency. We moved on to talking to Alex from the NTU, uh, the cuts, swinging cuts, I love that word, swinging cuts at Melbourne University and what that means and we moved on to This Is The Week That Was, followed by a very interesting and illuminating conversation with Debbie Brennan. Go down to the Steps of Parliament House tomorrow for the counter-rally uh, against fascism, one o'clock, uh, uh, Parliament House Steps. Had a good morning, Kim? Yes, yeah, and I think I'll have a good day on Sunday with a whole bunch of wonderful people who are there and uh, not celebrating. Yeah, that's exactly right. We're going to go out with, uh, I've got something here, I've just got to find it. Yeah, it's called Something Has Changed. That's Kate Vigo. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.